If you'll, I want to preach to you today on the mark of a Christian. If you'll stand with me, we'll have the answers. We read one verse and pray together. By this will all people know that you are my disciples if you have love for one another. So what is the mark of a Christian? Love, isn't it? Love for one another. Let's pray. Lord, I, I thank you for scripture how clear it is how wonderful it is and how it reveals who you are and lord once again i come to you asking that you will illumine our our minds to the greatness the depths the awesome richness of your love that that will cause us to worship you but also lord that we'll see that you're um, because of your holy spirit inside us we also have love and therefore we are to love one another I ask that we'll take these scriptures and apply them where we will and repent where we need to and be encouraged where we need to as well. In Christ's name, amen. Thank you. You ever wondered how we know if we love someone or something? I mean, really, how do you, you you say it, you say, I love ice cream. Well, do you really love ice cream, or do you just enjoy the benefit that you get from it? I, I tell people I love coffee, and I do love coffee, and I don't drink bad coffee. Uh, bad coffee is anything that comes in a, in a white cup with a green logo on it, <laughs> and, uh, and other such things. But when I say I love coffee, what I'm really loving is when I'm reading my Bible in that first cup, I begin sipping, I just wake up. And, and I, just, I just love the smell and everything of coffee, right? Why do I love coffee? Because there's a benefit in drinking it. Somebody might say, I love that movie. Well, what are they really saying? They're really saying that there's something about that movie that benefits them, that they really they enjoy or cause them to think about something or, or something like that. And most things that we say that we love, we love because we get benefit in one way or another. Am I telling the truth? I am telling the truth, right? Humans, by and large, are shallow people (laughs) when it comes to this whole matter of love. And so as I get into this, I want to address the elephant in the room very quickly, okay? My job as a pastor is to verbalize what a lot of you are thinking, and if you're not thinking it, to correct your thinking. And so the elephant in the room is that the 80s were the greatest decade there ever was. Anybody who was a teenager in the 80s is more blessed than any other person. I mean, think about it. We finally got rid of our love of polyester, (laughs) right? Double-knit polyester. We finally got rid of that, realized what it really was, an anathema. Uh, in, in the 80s, we had all kinds of wonderful big hair, right? I mean, we were the ones that popularized the mullet and its cousin, the rat tail. I mean, how wonderful were the 80s? Uh, the 80s had, had no cell phones, thank the Lord. Mom couldn't find me. The movies were the best. Star Wars was actually good in the 80s, wasn't it? Indiana Jones. And, of course, the greatest movie of all time came out in the 80s, Ferris Bueller's Day Off. (laughs) 
But one of the things about the 80s that makes it even better is the music. And we had, we had the greatest music. We, we, uh, we got past our love affair with the Beatles and all those old people. So, no, I'm just kidding. So, <laughs> I know I'm going to offend half of you. But, but the 80s music, I mean, there were some of the greatest one-hit wonders of all time were from the 80s. Aha, remember that group? But one of the things that the 80s do, the music in the 80s, is it shows us how shallow we are in our, our love. I mean, in the 70s, there was this husband-wife team that said love will keep us together until they get a divorce in 2010, right? But in the 80s, think about some of the lyrics that show us how sh- uh, shallow we are. I can't fight this feeling anymore, right? I've forgotten what I started fighting for. What on earth does that mean? It's time to bring the ship to the shore, throw away the oars forever, because I can't fight this feeling anymore. I've forgotten what I started fighting for. Love is a feeling? Or how about this one? We can build this dream together, standing strong forever. You just want to roll your eyes when you think about it now. And I saw these guys in concert and thought it was great. But anyway, nothing's going to stop us now. If this world runs out of lovers, we still have each other. Oh, brother. (laughs) Nothing's going to stop us now. And every good love song had to have whoa, 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 whoa in it. Or else it wasn't a good love song. Or how about my all-time favorite shallow love song lyric? Ready? There's no love like your love, and no other could give more love. And here it is. There's nowhere unless you're there. Give me a break, right? Now, what do these songs teach us about the human idea of love? It's very shallow, first of all. Secondly, it's all about me. Now, you can say in the love song it's all about you, but honestly, you make me feel good, therefore I love you. That's what, when you say I love you, most people, they're actually saying you make me feel good, right? Made me feel good about myself. And so that's human love. That's how people fall out of love. I mean, we all say it. We're supposed to love the other person for better, for worse, for richer, for poorer, in sickness and in health, to love and to cherish. We say that, right? But the cherishing stops about the time that you learn that they leave their clothes everywhere. Or they snore really bad when they sleep. Or that, that, that endearing snort when they laugh becomes an annoyance. Or when their ambition fuels a greater love for the job than for their family, all of a sudden we fall out of love. Personal benefit isn't there, and so we just fall out. I don't love that person anymore. That's not the biblical idea of love at all. I mean, the Bible says that God is love, doesn't it? It says that he is love. There is no one or nothing that God could love that brings him benefit. His love is different. If something God can love can bring him benefit, then he's no longer God. Because the very essence of God is that he cannot benefit from anything outside of himself. Does that make sense? Oftentimes, we think of the perfections of God, and and love is one of its perfections. We think in terms of parts. Now, when it says God is love, we have a hard time wrapping our minds around that because it also says God is holy, God is just, God is righteous, 
God is merciful, and we, we take all these parts, and I, I think about the book, None Greater, written by Matthew Barrett, and he says the following about a doctrine of God that theologians call the simplicity of God. And the simplicity of God says that God is not um, divided into parts. He is the, everything is his essence. Everything that we describe is essential to who God is. And so he says this, he says the perfections of God are not like pie, as if we sliced up pie into different parts. Love being 10%, holiness 15%, omnipotence 7%, and so on. Unfortunately, this is how many Christians talk about God today, as if love, holiness, and omnipotence are different parts of God, God being evenly uh, divided between all these attributes. And then he says this, some even go further, believing that some attributes to be more important than others. This happens most often with divine love, which some say the mo- is the most important attribute. And the, the, the thing about God is that God, every attribute, every perfection, perfection of God is essential. It's his essence. He's completely this thing. It's hard for us to wrap our minds around it, isn't it? The Bible doesn't say God has love. It doesn't say God possesses all power. No, it says God is love. God is all-powerful. And if God is love, now think about something. I know I'm moving fast, but think with me. If God is love, then it is his nature to love, isn't it? Then you can find no greater love than the love that God has. And this Um, This is important. Jonathan Edwards, the greatest theologian who ever lived on American soil uh, in the the 17th century, reflected on the nature of God. Now, we know him as sinners in the hands of an angry God, right? But did you know that actually most, the bulk of of Edwards' writings were were, uh, uplifting? And one of the most uplifting writings had to do with the love of God. And he has... An, an essay called Heaven is a World of Love. And I want to I show you some of the, his meditations on who the love of God is and, and how important that is to us. And it's just a little excerpt. I think I'll probably send this out, a link out in an email for you to see it because it is really, it's really awesome. He says this. He says, the love of God dwells in heaven. Heaven is the palace or the presence chamber of the supreme being who is both the cause and the source of all holy love. Don't you want to get to know a person like that? He said, and this renders heaven a world of love. God is a fountain of love as the sun is a fountain of light. And therefore, the glorious presence of God in heaven fills heaven with love As the sun placed in the midst of the hemisphere in a clear day fills the world with light. Don't you want to be in a place like that? Don't you? The apostle tells us that God is love, 1 John 4, 8. And therefore, seeing he is an infinite being, it follows that he is an infinite fountain of love. There's no way that you can stop his love. It's an infinite source of love, Edward says. Seeing He is an all-sufficient being. It follows that he is full and overflowing and inexhaustible fountain of love. Isn't that wonderful about our Lord? He goes on to say, seeing he is unchangeable and eternal, 
He is an unchangeable and eternal source of love. In other words, if he's unchangeable and he loves you, nothing you can do can change his love for you. Make it greater or smaller. That's what Edwards is saying here. Then he says, there, in, even in heaven, dwells that God from whom every stream of holy love, yea, every drop that this or ever was proceeds, every drop of love that there has ever been in the world from its inception came from the throne of God. And he said, there dwells God the Father, and so the Son, who are united in infinitely clear and incomprehensible love. And then he, he finishes the essay. And there's more he says in there about the Holy Spirit and different things. But he says this, There the fountain overflows in streams and rivers of love and delight, enough for all to drink, to swim in, yea, so as to overflow the world, as it were, a deluge of love. And let me tell you something, if you are in Christ, when God remakes the heavens and the earth, you will swim in a deluge of God's love. Won't that be wonderful? God is the source of love. And therefore, if he's the source of love, he gave everything. The Bible says, God so loved the world that he gave. Giving and loving go hand in hand. I was reading an essay this week. Do you know, have you ever thought that God, God is so giving that every second of every day, at any one second, there are billions of blessings of God that go unnoticed. Have you ever thought about that? Every second of every day, billions of blessings go by unnoticed by the, the ones that he created. Think about, we, we love the fall. Think about how, how infinite the source of God's giving is. He, he created these leaves. Summertime, you've got the blooms in the spring on the trees. You've got the leaves in the summertime. Then in the fall, they turn, and what do they do? They fall off. Have you ever thought to the human mind how wasteful that is? Why didn't God just create it so that the leaves stay on there year-round? They turn color in the wintertime, they stay there, then they, they perk back up. Because God's the infinite source of everything. He can do whatever he wants. Uh, there's a, every early in the summer here in Virginia, there's a, a little bug. It's not the Japanese beetle that eats everything. It's another little bug. And it, it looks kind of black until you're walking along the road and you look at it and it's the prettiest iridescent green I've ever seen. It's a beautiful little insect. I don't know how many of you have seen that in the early summer. And then you go driving in your car and smash a thousand of them as you're running down the road. God creates that kind of beauty, doesn't he? he insects are beautiful. The, the, the animal world, there's so many beauties. The, the mountains, think about what God has done. He loves so much that he gave so much beauty. For all of human history until the last few years, the only heavenly bodies that we've been able to see are in our galaxy. For all of human history until the last few years, people could see between three and 6,000 stars in the sky. But our galaxy alone has billions of stars that we will never see. Billions and billions of them. And then you start thinking, well, well why, why didn't God just stop with a galaxy? Why didn't he just stop with those few thousand stars that we can see? No, he created a galaxy with infinite beauty. And then we have this thing called the Hubble telescope. And the Hubble telescope starts looking, and re we realize that the universe 
is full of some of the most beautiful sights that we have ever seen. Y'all have seen the pictures. And God has created and most of humanity never sees the beauty of billions and billions of galaxies, most of whom in our most powerful telescopes are little dots, and we know because of who our God is that they're full of beauty. God, because he loves, is infinite in the way that he gives. Isn't that wonderful? But let's back off from the macro down to something a little bit smaller. Take your Bibles and turn to Hosea. Hosea chapter number 11. Now Hosea is one of the minor prophets. And um, while you're turning there, I'm going to work my way through some other passages and we'll get to Hosea, okay? But I want you to consider that love goes hand in hand with unity. Think about the love of God for just a minute. John 17 Jesus is in his last night, and he's praying for the church. He's praying for the church, and he says, I in them, you in me, that they may become perfectly one, so that the world may know that you sent me and love me even as you loved me. Love them as, even as you love me. Father, I desire that they also whom you have given me may be with me where I am to see my glory that you may have given me because uh, you loved me before the foundation of the world. Everyone who the Father gave to the Son is loved with the same love. Think about this. We just talked about the overflowing uh, greatness of God's love. Every single person who's in Christ is loved with the same magnitude of love that the Father loves the Son. Isn't that what that says? Isn't it what it says? If you're in Christ, it may not feel like it right now. But you are loved with the same magnitude of love that God loves the Son. What a wonderful truth that is, isn't it? God is love. Now, did He love us because we're wonderful people? Bo already Stole my thunder today. Mike did too, but that's okay. I'll forgive those guys. But let's, let's think for just a minute. I'll tell you what, hold your finger in Hosea. Let's go to Deuteronomy. I know we're all over. We're going to go to a ton of Scripture today. But uh, hold your finger in Hosea because we're going right there. But let's go to Deuteronomy, and we're going to go to chapter number 7. Now, let me set this up. The children of Israel have been in the wilderness 40 years they're getting ready to go over in the promised land. And I should have thrown a picture up on the screen of what this looks like. But they're on the hills, hills of Moab overlooking the promised land. If you've been to the Dead Sea and you've seen where Mount Nebo is, you know that's the hills of Moab. They're looking at the promised land. And Moses is given the final words of God to them before Moses goes up to Mount Nebo and dies, and they go into the promised land. And this is what God told the children of Israel. He said, um, It was not because you were more in number than any other people that the Lord has set his love on you and chose you, for you the fewest of all people. But it is because the Lord loves you and is keeping the oath that he swore to your fathers, that the Father, the Lord has brought you out with a mighty hand and redeemed you from the house of slavery, from the hand of Pharaoh, uh, king of Egypt. 
Now, what did he say? He basically said there, there's no benefit for me to love you. I mean, he's, he's kind of like looking at him like kids saying, you're not big. You were the smallest of all the countries. You were the weakest of all the nations. And I chose to set my love on you. There was no benefit. They weren't easy to love, by the way, were they? They, they weren't. And this is a story of everybody who's in Christ. I hate to say this, but you're not easy to love. You're not easy for a holy person to love. And I'm especially not easy for a holy God to love. But God, remember what we learned about his love. It's eternal and unending, and it will never change because even as ugly on the inside as you and I can be, God loves us with the same love that he loves the Son. Remember that. But God did not set his, there, there's, there's nothing attractive about us. But God didn't set his love on us and call us out of Egypt, our bondage of sin, for nothing, did he? Now turn back to Hosea 11. Let's go to Hosea 11. And I'm going to set this up for just a minute. Hosea, I want to preach through Hosea one time. It, it is a wonderful poetic story that shows the depth of the love of God for people. It's a wonderful exposition on love. Hosea 11, and if you remember Hosea is a prophet, you read in the first chapter, God told him to go marry somebody out of prostitution is what it says. We can debate what that is. I'm not going to do it here. We can talk about it some other time. But he marries Gomer, who is as unfaithful as anybody could be, right? And he keeps, he, he tells, go, he tells uh, Hosea, okay, yeah, she messed up. Go buy her from the slave market. And he has to do that because his wife really messed up. And it's a picture of Israel who God called out of Egypt. It's very clear. And look at Hosea 11 and what it says. When Israel was a child, I loved him, and out of Egypt I called my son. So there's their, there's their salvation. There's a rescue from bondage. Verse number 2. The more they were called, the more they went away. They kept sacrificing to the Baals and burning offerings to the idols. That what he's, he's going, recounting all the history of Israel, 700 years of history. And what did they do? They went into the promised land, they got rich, and they started turning to Baal. They started turning the idols to everything but God. And isn't that what we do? We turn to everything but God. Everything. Hey, you know what? This really pleases me, and we get more pleasure out of that than we do God. Well, my 401k will keep me uh, more secure, so we turn to that rather than say, God, you know, bless my 401k, but I'm really dependent on you. And we turn to all these different pleasures and idols rather than turn to God. And so uh, God rescued them out of Egypt, and instead of worshiping him, they worshiped Baal. But God kept showing his kindness. Look at the next verse, verse number three. Yet it was I who taught Ephraim to walk. I took them up by their arms but they did not know that I healed them. Now let me stop there. Ephraim or Ephraim is a word that is talking about the northern kingdom. The northern kingdom of Israel. That's what that means, the northern kingdom. Next verse. 
I led them with cords of kindness, with bands of love, and I became to them as one who eases the yoke on their jaws, and I bent down to them and fed them. And so here, here he's saying, they didn't even know that I healed them. They didn't even know that I protected them. They didn't even know that I kept them as a nation because they were busy following their idols. And yet I kept protecting them. I kept going, and I led them with cords of kindness. And, and I bent down and I fed them. That's, he's showing his humility there, uh, or a form of humility by doing that. And still, Israel wants anyone but God. Here he is taking care of them. They want anyone but God. Verse number 7. My people are bent on turning away from me. Verse number 7. Verse number 8. So the Lord responds, How can I give you up, Ephraim? How can I hand you over, O Israel? How can I make you like Adma? How can I treat you like Zeboim? My heart recoils within me. My compassion grows warm and tender. These two places, these two names mentioned in that verse, are uh, villages that were destroyed along with Sodom and Gomorrah when God judged Sodom and Gomorrah, let you know. So he's saying, How can I just totally destroy you, O Israel? How can I just give you over? And so once God sets his love on someone, it cannot be changed. Why? Why? Because God is love. It is his nature. He can't go against his nature. And so he loves his covenant children even when there's no benefit to them. Even when we disobey even when we fail to love others as God tells us to, even when we go after idols, whatever that idol may be, whatever that pleasure may be, even when we live with an unthankful heart, God still loves us if we're in Christ. Isn't that wonderful? I'm reminded of the lyrics of my favorite hymn, and I almost put this on Mike to have us sing it today, but I didn't torture him like that. Uh, the love of God. Could we with ink the ocean fill... And were the skies a parchment made, were every stalk on earth a quill, and every man a scribe by trade, if the whole world were filled with the ability to be scribes, and everybody was doing it, and the oceans are full of ink, here's what the writer says, to write the love of God above would drain the ocean dry, nor could the scroll contain the whole that stretched from sky to sky. How infinite, magnificent is the love of God. Isn't, isn't that encouraging for us today? Now, I don't know where you are. You could have really messed up this week. You could be walking in here today beating yourself up for how unfaithful you were, for what you did. Maybe you, you were um, impatient with your kids this week. Maybe you said something that you shouldn't have said to your wife. Maybe, I don't know what it is, but you're in here and you're beating yourself up. Can I tell you something? If you will go to God and confess, he, just like the, the father, the prodigal son, he comes running to you. He wants you to come to him. He doesn't want you to run away from him. God is love. Now, I say all that. Because I want to talk about something very important. And that is this. If God is love, and there's that infinite, magnificent, abounding, overflowing love in God, then if you are a Christian, it's in you 
in the form of a Holy Spirit, right? Jesus said that it's good for you that I go so I can send my Spirit, the Comforter, and he will be in you. He is in us. And so this God of love dwells in his believers and changes us on the inside. And so Jesus can say these words that we, we read already. By this, all people will know that you are my disciples if you have love one for another or for one another. However you want to say it. God, the, if you have God's Holy Spirit inside of you, you can't help but to love. According to Jesus, if an individual Christian does not show love toward another true Christian, then the world has a right to judge that he or she is not a Christian. That's what Jesus is saying. It's such an important mark of a believer that Jesus commanded his disciples to love one another no less than four times on his final night on earth before his crucifixion. He said this, this is my commandment. Here's the command, that you love one another how? As I have loved you. Can anybody do that, by the way? No, but we can try our best. In the same manner, maybe it would be a better way to say it. Uh, John 15, 17, these things I command you, that you will love one another. But it doesn't stop with Jesus' commands. Paul, Paul spends 11 chapters of Romans unpacking the glorious love of God, the glorious salvation of God, the, the depths and the riches of salvation. And in a, the second application paragraph in chapter number 12, Paul said, love one another with brotherly affection, outdo one another showing honor. Don't jostle to be the first one in the fellowship meal. <laughs> I know you're chasing your kids down, hoping they don't, anyway. To the church at Corinth, with all its division and problems, Paul concluded his second epistle by saying, Finally, brothers, rejoice, aim for restoration, comfort one another, agree with one another, live in peace, and the love of God and of peace be with you all. And the church of Corinth had all kinds of problems. We just finished talking about that, didn't we? Sermon series on that. In his letter to the church of Ephesus, in the... In Ephesians is another high um, um, soteriological book. It's, it's a high view of salvation. The first three chapters are glorious in the benefits of salvation, isn't it? It's all doctrine. The very first paragraph, very first sentence, here's how Paul applies salvation. With all humility and gentleness and patience, bearing one another how? In love. Did you catch that? You are lovingly, you are to lovingly bear with one another. Bear with one another. Implication is there are some people you are not going to want to love. And you, you're supposed to. You're supposed to bear with them. You're supposed to be patient with them. You're not supposed to roll your eyes. Here we go again. They're always talking about politics. They're always talking about the mass. Their grandchildren are better than anybody else's grandchildren. No, we're supposed to lovingly bear with them, aren't we? There are two really good grandchildren down in Alabama right now, just to let you know. 
Paul told the fledgling church in Thessalonica, and may the Lord make you increase and bound in love for one another and for all as we do. We abound, increase and abound in love. It's possible. 1 Thessalonians 4.9. Now concerning brotherly love, you have no need for anyone to write to you, for you yourselves have been taught by God to love one another. We are to abound. We've been taught by God to love. We see it in how God loves us. Peter told the church scattered in Asia Minor, Four times in 1 Peter, and that's another book that we preached through since I've been here. Above all, keep loving one another earnestly since love covers a multitude of sins. He's not saying love covers up sin. That's not what he's saying. He's saying that sometimes there are little times when people might sin against us, and it's just they overlook something. It's not intentional. If we love them, we're going to overlook that we can overlook a little bit of irritation sometimes can't we if it's not their nature i've had when i was younger i'd have men who are my heroes and they would disappoint me one way or another actually maybe even you know whether it's impatience or ignoring something or whatever else and and it could be considered a sin what do you do you love that person you overlook it now not habitual sin but you, you understand what i'm saying over and over, the New Testament writers tell the recipients to love one another. Now, here's the question. It's, it's over and over again this happens. Why do, does the Bible say this? Why does God have to say over and over, love one another? And the answer is that the church is made of a diversity of people. I'm looking at great diversity here. Great diversity of backgrounds, of likes and dislikes, of decision-making, of, of where they place their priorities, of different understandings, and so on. And we go on and on. If, if we were all the same, there would be no call for us to love one another because we would have that natural affinity because we all like the Dallas Cowboys or whatever else, right? Or... Or take your pick. Whatever our, our affinities were all the same. If we were all the same, there would be no need for a call to love one another. If everyone was a Jewish Pharisee or a Roman slave or some kind of unified group, there would be no testimony in how much the church loves one another. If a church was made up of all slaves, it wouldn't be any big deal for them to say, oh, well, yeah, that group loves each other. They're all the same. If they're all Roman soldiers, everybody on the outside would say, well, it's no wonder they love each other. They're all soldiers. There's a bond, band of brotherhood. But the outside world in the New Testament would see the elite of Corinth having a meal with the poorest slaves in the church and sharing with one another. And they would see the, the, the Jewish zealots having a meal and worshiping together with a Roman official. And they would say, wow, can you believe the love that that group has for one another? You see how it works? It's the diversity. The Ephesian church is made of Jews and Gentiles. The church had the very rich and the very poor, the free and the slaves, and this led to social snobbery. I could go on with other church, uh, churches, but the point is, 
that these churches were ripe for dissension and division over non-gospel issues. No, we don't want to serve the Roman government. Yes, we should serve the Roman government. That's my paycheck, right? You understand what's going on. And the modern church is not a a homogenous unit. That's what uh, demographers call these kind of groups, a, a homogenous unit. It's not. We're diverse. And increasingly, Americans, Christians in America, are bickering over non-essentials. Satan is called the accuser of God's family in Revelation 12.10. Too often, we do his work for him. And his goal is to divide the church and keep people from believing the gospel. 1 John 3.10, by this is evident Who are the children of God and who are the children of the devil? Whoever does not practice righteousness of God is not of God and nor the one who does not love his brother. Children of the devil do not love their brother. What he's saying here, by the way, is this. When we fail to love each other, we are acting like the devil's children, even if we're not. Listen to what Paul said to the church in Galatia. For the whole law is fulfilled in one word. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. But if you bite and devour one another, watch out that you are not consumed by one another. When Paul wrote to the believers in Rome, he addressed the issues of what meat was considered unclean and which day to worship on. Some were worshiping on the Sabbath, some were worshiping on Sunday. Each certainly was a controversial in the culture of the day, and he called them to love one another, but... they're probably more controversial and even more important than most of the political issues or the COVID responses that people are arguing about today. The paradigm-shifting revelation he shared in Romans 14 is this. While true love and unity are never achieved at the expense of primary biblical truths, they are achieved at the expense of personal preferences. And secondary issues. True unity through love is achieved at the expense of yours and my personal preferences and my opinions and your opinions. We are not, the Bible says, to quarrel over opinions. For the one who is weak in faith, welcome him, but not to quarrel over opinions. Romans 14.3, let not the one who eats despise the one who abstains. Let not the one who abstains pass judgment on the one who eats, for God has welcomed him. There are people in this sanctuary you know are wrong on whatever your issue happens to be. Well, guess what? God welcomed that person into the kingdom of God just as much as he welcomed you. That means that God loves him or her with the same depth of love as he does you. Which is what? We already covered this. As if you are Jesus Christ with the same love that he has for Jesus Christ. One person, I'm sorry, I got ahead of myself here. Did I skip over a verse? One person esteems a day better than another. 
while another esteems all days alike, each one should be fully convinced in his own mind. We can take contradictory positions on non-essential issues, but still honor God by valuing love over our opinions. So long as we hold our opinions with faith and a good conscience, God himself approves of people on both sides of non-essential matters. If God can be pleased both by those who do and don't eat certain foods that were prohibited in the Old Testament law, and by those who worship on the Sabbath or another day of the week, can't he also believe or be pleased with those who do or do not take the vaccine, or those who do or do not take the mask, wear the mask? Can't he? I'm getting very direct and pointed here. Because it's needed in the church today, not just this church, every church. Paul said in Romans 14, 4, Who are you to pass judgment on a servant of another? By the way, that servant of another was a servant of God. He's talking about other believers. God warns us not to set up our own judgment seats as if we were omniscient. Why do we imagine that we know that a brother's or sister's decisions, heart, and motives are wrong. How do we know that? How do we come up with that? According to Romans 14, 19, all of us will give account of ourselves to God. We will not ultimately answer to each other, but we will answer to God concerning each other. The call that we are called to do is to pursue peace with everyone. That means unless there's a compelling reason to speak or to post, And you've sought God's direction, and since His leading, you can speak graciously. Then do what Scripture says, if you can't, and keep what you believe between yourself and God. Having strong opinion never equals God telling us to express it. Seriously. Scripture confronts us for how we have treated each other before the watching world. And it's like when we get on social media, we can be as brutal as we want to be with our opinion. And it's happened even within this own church. I don't, I'm not on social media much, and sometimes I just want to, I can't believe what I'm reading. Just because you have an opinion doesn't need to be, it needs to be expressed. Did you know that's what the Bible says? Here's what you should consider. When you consider social media or conversation, here, the, here's some Bible guidelines. Ready? Number one, a fool takes no pleasure in understanding but only expressing his opinion. I'm serious. It's grievous when I hear conversations about so-and-so they just blasted this, not even aware of the opinions of anybody around them. How about this one? When words are many, transgression is not lacking. Whoever restrains his lips is prudent. Guess what? The best thing you can probably do is not to put that post on social media or not to say that in a group of people. How about this one? There is one who is, whose rash words are like sword thrusts, but the tongue of the wise brings healing. We, it's no secret that America is divided today. 
And in reality, the church should be the one place where there's unity. Now, not unity of opinion, but unity of love and brotherhood, right? What is the ground of true unity, by the way? Let me give you these. I'm just about done. I'm wrapping this whole thing up. What is the ground of true unity? Mutually believe primary truths about Jesus. Jesus is God. He came in the world to save sinners. He died on the cross. Those sort of things, right? Refusal to elevate secondary beliefs over primary beliefs. Secondary beliefs is everything that has to do with Washington, D.C. And, and Richmond. Seriously. And, has everything, and secondary opinions, secondary issues are everything to do with vaccines and masks. And whatever other thing is coming down the pike next year that we don't even know about. Demonstrated heartfelt love for Jesus and others. That's a, that's a ground of unity. The supernatural work of the Holy Spirit. So we had this happen just recently. I think it's a good thing, but I'm not real sure. In the same prayer meeting, I didn't hear this firsthand. I was told this. This is secondhand information. In a prayer meeting, while a group of Christians are praying here in the church, one said, Lord, I thank you that there's a vaccine and that people are getting vaccinated. And a few minutes later, somebody else said, Lord, I thank you that people are standing strong against the vaccine and not giving in. Now, there's nothing wrong with those opinions. But if those two people can get up from there and genuinely love one another, guess what? God is glorified. They don't argue about it. They want the best for each other. That is the countercultural nature of Christian love. That's what I desire in this church. We have many different opinions, but we should not let these secondary issues divide us. Since God is love, and I'm, this is wrapping it up right here. Since God is love, the source of infinite love, and loves those who are unloving. And he takes those people and he puts his Holy Spirit and his Holy Spirit lives within them. Then we can demonstrate the love of God by loving and not bickering over secondary issues, including max vaccines or masks or any other issue. And we can show the genuine love of God towards one another. Isn't that wonderful? That's what God did. That's why I spent so much time talking about what God has done for us. Because he is the, the fountain of love. My prayer as a pastor, and by the way, uh, this is free. This is not in my sermon. There are many pastors right now who are heartbroken over the disunity in the congregations over these kind of issues. Proving that their people are no different than the people outside the church. My heartfelt prayer is that we can have differing opinions on whatever these non-essential things are, but we can love one another with a deep, deep, God-given love. Isn't that what you want? Heaven is a world of love, and this sanctuary and these people should be a foretaste of the love that we will experience in eternity. That's my prayer. Lord, I pray that you will help us to love one another 
as God loved us. I don't love as I should. And you convict me about that, Lord. None of us love as we should. But Lord, I pray, I pray that we will make the main thing the main thing. That we will worship God in spirit and in truth. That we will love one another. That we will be in your word seeing these things understanding these things and being humbled by the fact that you loved us. And in turn, we will want to pour out that love to one another. Lord, make this a foretaste of heaven. In Christ's name, amen.